that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jesse Nigro. I am editor of the North American Anglican, and I am joined today by my co-host, Andrew Brazier. Deacon, how are you today? Doing good, Jesse. How are you doing? Pretty good. We're, uh, we've gotten a little fired up this morning in our pre-show recording, talking about um, the wild world of wrestling in evangelical churches. And um, it's a topic that is near and dear to my heart as an old-fashioned wrestling fan. Although as a prayer book Anglican, I, I just don't know if I could justify the, uh, the Ric Flair experience um, in the order of Holy Communion according to the Book of Common Prayer. You know, it would be really entertaining to take a large, you know, altar service book and just plow it over the head of somebody at some point. You know, maybe throw them over <laughs> the altar rail. Or no, no, maybe not. Um, I can like feel my bishop, you know, getting ready to you know, yank me out of the pulpit. And uh, <laughs> right, I mean, if, if you're in one of these uh, struggling storefront congregations, then obviously a folding chair is is well within your reach. That, and, uh... Very easily, we we live and die by them. So uh, yeah, we're we're ready to go. I mean, Ric Flair, come on, bring it. I'm ready to go. That's right. He's, oh, he's jet flying, so, um, yeah, well, that's been in the news lately, and um, it seems like such a, boy, seeker sensitivity in the evangelical world knows no bounds, Um, and of course, as I said, I, I am not at all opposed to the idea of professional wrestlers being in church, but, um, they probably ought to just, uh, you know, sit and kneel and stand like the rest of us, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, we had, we had a good conversation before we uh, started recording here. And, you know, for me, I'm not opposed to, to doing something that is unique, that is about reaching out to the public and, you know, bringing them into even the church building. But what we what we see when we, we pick on churches that do this is there's just a, a blurring of the lines, and not even a blurring, there's just an abolishment of the lines of worship and worship space versus reaching out to the public and appealing to those who are curious about the faith. Because I'm all about, you want to invite uh, you know, wrestlers in to talk about their faith and what's happened to them, you know, or, or anyone for that matter. You know, That's good. That's awesome. You know, make an event out of it. Have people come down. You know, do it when it's not a service night you know you don't do it sunday morning you know if you have a wednesday night service don't do it then you know or if you don't have a wednesday night service then do it on a wednesday night but have them come in you know <laughs> speak you know give a lecture give a talk you know q a whatever may be the case this goes along with like it's not just wrestlers we're picking on you jesse and i both grew up wrestling fans for crying out loud but you know it goes for you know having a lecture from like a college professor 
don't invite him to come up on Sunday morning and lecture, you know, something. Right. You know, yeah. don't invite uh, some other local uh, celebrity uh, down south, you know, some co- college football coach, you know, like, don't do that. <laughs> Not on the well, Sunday I've, worship service. You, I've certainly seen that growing up, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And instead, have your worship service <laughs> because it's to worship God. You know, That's our very, very small, you know, offering to God, and as Anglicans, we don't even offer hardly anything, really nothing at all. God offers himself in the form of the bread and wine, and we take, receive, and we thank God. We get that grace. That's the focus. And instead, on another day of the week, have a unique event where you're getting people to come into the doors of a church and talk about the faith, and then hopefully they will stay too, taste and see that the Lord is good on a Sunday morning. Yeah, and I think that's kind of an interesting, I mean, it seems to, if you can take it out of the official and principal services of the church and qualify it as an evangelistic outreach, um, it does seem a little more legitimate once you look at it that way. But Andrew, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago that, of course, then you run the risk of well, not everybody likes wrestling, or maybe that's that that's the coach of a football team that beat my team last year, yep. right? You know, yep. you always run the risk of uh, alienating as big a group of people as you might be welcoming in, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe we should be open to uh, you know evangelizing to even wrestling fans or even mm-hmm. Nebraska football fans, you know, <laughs> which is not really a problem for, you know, me up here in Omaha, but, um, yeah, it, Hey, football isn't, isn't necessarily a huge thing for me, but mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with, um, sitting next to football f- fans during worship either. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but this does kind of have a correlation to some of these, uh, ongoing debates about Anglican distinctives, though, doesn't it? I mean, if you if your thing is Anglo-Catholic, uh, I personally think you have a sort of a responsibility to, for lack of a better phrase, tone it down, um, such that someone on the opposite side of the spectrum could visit your parish and not feel utterly alienated? What do you think of that, Andrew? Well, there's something that you said before, Jesse, that resonated with me, that when it comes to the way a pastor is, uh, you know, pastoring his parish, the way a priest is, is in charge, that really he needs to be able to appeal from the prayer book so that someone of any uh, various theological thought or background can come in and feel at home as a mere Anglican. And that's something that I believe can exist. We don't see it in the majority of of Anglicanism today because we we really isolate ourselves into distinct bodies. And we can, I think we talked about it before on how certain dioceses uh, have um, their reputations for what kind of of spectrum, if there's a spectrum of Anglicanism, you know, where they're, they're standing. And that's okay to have that kind of background and that kind of, you know, you know, core, you know, competency in terms of, you know, what you're going to get when you go into a certain diocese. But for the average churchgoer, we really need to be able to root ourselves 
into the Book of Common Prayer and the theology of 39 articles in the ordinal. So that way, A, we're, we're actually Anglican, you know, we're, we're practicing what we preach in terms of being rooted in Anglicanism. And B, although we may have our distinctive theologies where someone leans more Catholic or more Reformed, we're not self-imposing and saying that this is the only way. You're explaining yourself, at least, so that, uh, for example, in a sure. sermon, you know, if you're if you're going into uh, something that's more of a Reformed distinctive or more Anglo-Catholic distinctive, you need to make sure to root it back into the liturgy of the prayer book, root it back into the 39 articles. So then someone who's in the pews, who's like, I don't get it, you know, this is not really my cup of tea, sees that you're not abandoning, you know, something that is Anglican, but you're rooting yourself back in. Uh plugging yourself back in, you're not going off the, the rails of being a, uh, a non-papal, you know, old Catholic, or going into a Presbyterian with a prayer book, you know, um, there's so many right. times where I've heard sermons where people have really, you know, and I say people, really pastors have really you know, stated what they believed, and it crosses the lines of violating one of the 39 articles or the prayer book. And I've heard this on the Reformed side, and I've heard this on the Anglo-Catholic side. And it's it's not a very good place to be in because now you're really pulling, you're shepherding your congregation away from the core of what is Anglican and, sh- and shepherding mm-hmm. them away from mere Anglicanism into an old Catholic, you know, religion or into a, you know, uh, a more Genevan or even uh, Zwingli model of reformed thought and not coming back to the common core of what is Anglican. Right. And, and of course, the issue here is disobedience. And it becomes even more difficult when we no longer have a common rudder that we sort of are each steering our ship by and suddenly, well, my prayer book doesn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so you can no longer even make the common appeal mm-hmm. to, well, here's what our liturgy says. There is no our liturgy. There's, yeah. we, we either use a different book or um, we, our congregation doesn't use those prayers. We, ch- we, we go track three or track two mm-hmm. or A or B or whatever. And so, you know, it... This, again, underscores the importance of common prayer, the importance of the 39 articles as authoritative. Um, And look, I'm not even particularly thrilled with this idea of having uh, dioceses that have their own churchmanship flavor, um, in part because... uh, Technically, the the diocese should be geographical. I yeah. mean, that should yeah. be our end goal, which is to say that, um, you know, if you're living and serving and ministering or being ministered to in this part of the geography, then um, that's the diocese you happen to belong to. Yeah. And if we keep on sort of pushing the theological flavors of different sort of people's whims, then it continues to be a place that is more than happy to be unwelcoming to a large part of people within their own communion. Yeah. And that seems uncharitable, quite frankly. 
Yeah, you uh, and and I would say I you know I want to be sure to underscore that I understand why this is the case, and I think it's got a lot to do with liturgical chaos and women's ordination. Would you agree with that one? Yeah, I think that it really it comes about where the prayer book is disregarded and the add-ons become big into play. Where you have starting in, and, and actually my history is a little bit rusty on this because, as I recall, the Anglican Breviary I think dates back to the 20s or the 30s. I actually have a copy of one, but it's not uh, readily at hand. But you know, it comes over. <laughs> into uh, the Americas uh, during that time period in which some of the Anglo-Catholics, not all, but some of the Anglo-Catholics start to supplement the Book of Common Prayer by using and utilizing... Uh, oh, the, the Missal. The Missal, excuse me. Yeah, 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 I'm talking about the Breviary. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the Missal. Thank you, Jesse. And start using those prayers as an add-on to the Book of Common Prayer. And two things about that is that, you know, I don't think that the intent is always bad on the parts of many Anglo-Catholics when that started happening. But then some prayers started coming in that were very questionable and very much more of a Roman nature. And what you see is this evolution from merely gently supplementing the authorized Book of Common Prayer to all of a sudden you have a, a service where the Missal is becoming the service and there's all these variations and add-ons that you can have uh, to the perfect service. And then to also throw my stone towards the Reform side, as much as the Reformed will say, oh, we love the Book of Common Prayer, that's the way we do liturgy, that's not necessarily true, historically. For so many in the Reformed camp, instead of using the pure you know, Book of Common Prayer service, it was omit this, omit that. You know, It's kind of ironic. On one side, you would right. omit you know, huge portions of the book. On the other side, you were supplementing. And then, the sadly, the compromise, quote-unquote, doing air quotes over here, people, uh, compromises. <laughs> well, let's reform the Book of Common Prayer, but instead of a reform, we have this radical transformation in 1979. And at the same time, like you're mentioning, Jesse, like women's ordination comes into play, the Book of Common Prayer 79 comes out, the continuing movement, you know, uh, uh, steps away from the Episcopal Church and uh, goes off, quote-unquote, keeping the 28 prayer book, but varieties of those jurisdictions some you know very few there's a couple of them that stick with the 28 prayer book as is and the other ones are just continue to use the missile which is a lot closer to the 28 than the 1979 book of common prayer but i'm digressing all that to be said the liturgical chaos that you mentioned comes about with the 79 prayer book which in part tries to rectify the inconsistent use of the prayer book on both sides of the Anglican spectrum are reformed in Anglo-Catholics, and then also modernize the liturgy, which leads to uh, liberalism coming in, not in the political philosophy, yeah. but in the philosophy of, of trying to change uh, the actual faith uh, into what we believe, into more of a quote-unquote modern faith. And that's the problem we see. I mean, each one of these like factors you know, alone uh, except for liberalism, you know, uh, could have a good point to be made. And Toon is about to make this point in a second that he's not opposed to changing the Book of Common Prayer as is. You can make gentle revisions. And you could easily make gentle revisions to bring in parts of the prayers that the Anglo-Catholics wanted in that doesn't violate the 39 Articles. Also, really just have more discipline in the church, which we sadly need even today, to make sure that those who are omitting doing the prayer book are doing the prayer book as is. And those who are adding to it are not adding from outside. 
And then finally, you know, you can do a, uh, a more updated language without throwing out the uh, baby with the bathwater. And like the Reformed right. Episcopal Church did when they did a modern language of their basically 28 slash 1662 prayer book. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, you said it well. It seems that there is a progressive and liberal trend that's sort of come down through the mainline institutions of Anglicanism. But there are these other theological sort of, uh, I would say, obstacles to unity and obstacles to classical Anglicanism, which have been sort of the overreactions of so-called conservative groups, both on the Catholic or Reformed or Evangelical side. Mm -hmm. And so they've all tried to defend orthodoxy, um, but in ways that are very narrow and exclusive to every other sort of historical facet of classical Anglicanism. I like that. I like that term, facet, because that's how it is. I mean, Anglicanism is like a diamond. There's, There's various facets. We're all, you know, one. United, but instead we've broken off and become camps. You know, you got your camp over here, my camp over mm-hmm. there, and we just keep warring with each other to try to exterminate. It's the like other the camp. the NWO versus uh, <laughs> yes. Ric Flair. You know, <laughs> man, it keeps coming back to wrestling. <laughs> perfect image right there. Uh, there you go. Woo! All right. Well, let's uh, move back to tune since you brought him up. I suppose. Uh, we should remind our listener that we are, in fact, uh, still reading <laughs> Knowing God Through the Liturgy by Peter Toon. And uh, we don't have time to plow through a ton of uh, the book here. We did three paragraphs we last episode, so we're only committing to doing three more paragraphs this episode. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We have set the bar low enough for ourselves. And uh, so if you're following along in Chapter 2, Liturgy Since Cranmer, we are going to tackle this second section in bold called Solid Foundation. Uh, Say, Andrew, would you like to read that first paragraph? Yeah, absolutely. So picking up at Solid Foundation. Of course, I'm not claiming that the classic tradition of Anglican Common Prayer was or is perfect. I am not saying that the American Book of Common Prayer, 1928, and Canadian Book of Common Prayer in 1962 would not benefit from some wise and gentle revision and from a new preface to explain the logic of saving and sanctifying faith on which this type of worship is based and from which it proceeds. It is possible that some of the new services introduced to the recent prayer books, example, Easter services, could be incorporated, adapting them to the theology and ethos of the common prayer tradition. Then provision could be made for the use of a revised Psalter, the kind, for example, authorized in England in 1966 and called the Revised Psalter, which had both C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot on its revision committee. However, the major point is that the books of 1928 and 1962 can be improved or their contents adjusted for contemporary use because their basic tradition is sound and well-tried in all important respects. Since the foundation is solid, there is possibility for a limited number of optional additions here and there, as long as they are done in the same ethos and doctrine as the original. The grandeur and glory of the Western excuse me, the grandeur and glory of the tradition of common prayer is that there has been a shared, excellent form of worship to be used by all who belong to a particular branch of Christendom, in this case the Anglican way. The excellence is not in the form of words, 
but also in the way that the tradition reflects the ethos and doctrine of Holy Scripture, as well as the classic, patristic, trinitarian, doctrinal, and the devotional heritage of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Paul's there. I know there's two paragraphs, but they were so tied together in thought, I wanted to plow through. But Jesse, what's your kind of thoughts yeah. on what uh, Dr. Toon is telling us in terms of a light and general revision? Well, I mean, this kind of goes back to the point that uh, very often when I'm having sort of debates or conversations with advocates of modern language or modern prayer books that give a, a variety of options, they'll point, they'll point to this uh, clause in, in the preface of the prayer book that uh, says that, you know, liturgies can be adapted from time to time. Mm -hmm. So that is basically to say that the, the common prayer tradition is not meant to be mo this monumental and completely wooden thing such that it's, uh, it's some kind of God-breathed canon like mm -hmm. the sacred scriptures, right? Um, and he actually uh, mentions Eliot, and uh, my, my philosophy on this is that um, everyone should go read uh, T.S. Eliot's short little essay on tradition in poetry, because he really kind of articulates what it means to be traditional, which is not to be blindly just doing what was done before because it happens to have been what was done before. Um, in a way, he says that kind of defeats tradition. It's rather to um, do your best to understand, to take within you the whole of the past and then looking out into the world as a living, breathing being, um, sort of extending everything that you've learned back out and possibly tweaking what needs to be tweaked or, or added or whatnot, or whatever, whatever is appropriate for the age. And so there is a handing off of a large body of work, but that large body of work is like a, a a corpus and it has its own logic and it can sort of adapt to or um, make provisions for the needs of the age. And I think that's very much what Tune is talking about here. Um, and, and again, we're talking about gentle revisions. And anyone who knows the history of the prayer book knows that the 1662 is not the first prayer book, mm -hmm. right? It's it sort of is the last in, in a, a series of revisions that, you know, was a long process taking place over a century or more. And, of course, the 1928, although many classical prayer book Anglicans, like Peter Toon himself, um, sort of stuck with the 28 while he was here in America, um, see it as part of the tradition, but... Certainly, there are things that are in the 28 that are different from the 1662. Yeah. And so, you know, I think his emphasis that uh, we see ourselves as belonging to a particular branch of Christendom with our own authoritative sort of uh, theological context that comes from our liturgy and also from 39 Articles... Uh, that we have a way of 
adapting new things, but they have to pass muster. And if you're going to say, well, hex to that, and uh, I'm just going to do whatever my little Anglo-Catholic heart or my own little uh, Anglo-Reformed heart wants to do, then what you do is you take a branch of Christendom and you splinter it into twigs, basically, and you become the Pope of your own little twig, regardless of whether you see yourself as, well, no, I'm reaching further back into the greater unity of the ancient church, which is always sort of like a hazy, misty sort of, I'm going to reach into early Christianity, pull out something weird that I happen to like, and claim that this is part of, you know, undivided Christendom, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think that we need to, first of all, not be, not appear to be so narrow that we're against revision. But second of all, to really embrace, regardless of where you're at in the theological spectrum, the fact that you belong to this tradition, it doesn't belong to you. Yeah. yeah. You don't get to take it and make it into whatever you want. You need to have some kind of obedience and submission And even if your conscience says, you know, I would personally like to add this on, then be someone who's obedient, but at home prays some extra prayers, right? (laughs) Or, you know, but you need to submit to the unity, or guess what? You're not being Catholic. Yeah, and there's so many things that you said that were well said on that, Jesse. It's just making me think, because... I'll, I'll pick up on the, the last thread you said, like, go home and say some private uh, prayers, you know. Because, frankly, I mean, I do that, you know. Like, in my own personal prayer life, you know, I'm bound by the prayer book, you know. I, I pray the daily offices uh, as an ordained clergyman. and uh, But and, you know, there's other prayers that I add to it, my own personal prayers. And Lewis, you know, classically states, and I forget which work he says it, but he mentions how... He prays for the dead because he makes the point. He's like, I'm at that point in life where all my friends have pretty much died. So when I have someone to pray right. for, they're already dead, you know. But I say the prayer nonetheless. But Lewis didn't advocate changing the liturgy to incorporate, you know, more prayers for the dead, you know. Um, regardless on how those would have been articulated, he was very much submitted, a man under authority who submitted to the prayer book and even writes, you know, several great essays on why the prayer book does not need to be revised and if it does he famously says just change a word i think every century or a word every generation yeah. um i like that rule we should yeah. we should uh promote that the, the lewis rule <laughs> the one lewis word rule. per century <laughs> but uh but he makes a great point because at the end of the day and you were making the same point of like we're we're men under authority and so much of of what i've experienced you know years ago in, in visiting other parishes I got this queasy feeling of you know did some of us leave evangelicalism in its worst aspects from where every man is his own pope it's just the bible and me to enter into a world where if there's no discipline in the Anglican church then every priest can be their own pope and so it's the famous saying in the American Revolution, of risking trading one tyrant a thousand miles away for a thousand tyrants one mile away. And we face 
that same problem in Anglicanism. We're not so insulated that we don't uh, have the same issues uh, that we like to criticize evangelicalism. Um, the classic, you know, Pharisee praying in the temple, you know, thank God I'm not a sinner like that man over there. <laughs> Sometimes we do that in Anglicanism. Thank God we're not, you know, such terrible, you know, Christians like those evangelicals over there. And look, the, the finger's pointing right back at us if we've just decided to abandon um, our authority, uh, which is held in the articles and the liturgy, and start doing our own pet theologies and making them uh, sacrosanct. And uh, it's, it's an interesting and scary place to be. And that's why, you know, one of the things that drove me into Anglicanism was A, the ancient church, you know, had the liturgy, and B, I realized, oh, it's no longer at the pastor's whims as to what will be uh, read in the church. The scriptures will be read. Uh, there is a guide, a lectionary for it. There is a uh, set guide for what will be prayed in the church. The pattern will not change. You're going to hear right. the law and the gospel, um, and then you're going to receive the sacrament, word and sacrament. It's, it's going to be there. And that is a nice fence, a nice boundary to protect the flock, to protect the people of God. And yeah. if we start I mean, monkeying I, I around with that. I've got a comment on, yeah, yeah, on that do. right there, if you don't mind, just because, uh, you know, when I first came into Anglicanism, it was through a prayer book parish. But, um, you know, a few years into that experience, uh, our priest started kind of... Uh, you know, he was the sort of guy who could never do anything for more than a couple of years and not want to jump ship or go try some some new um, jurisdiction, you know, which, of course, we didn't know at the time. Yeah. But, um, you know, I remember when I sort of figured out that he was wanting to drag the parish into uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and, you know, really struggling with, like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Um, I sort of feel like I don't even trust this guy anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but where else am I going to go? Mm -hmm. And and I just remember before finally deciding that you know we had to go find some other suitable place to worship on Sundays, and quite frankly, several other people left with us. Um, I just remember being comforted by the fact that as bad as his intentions or misguided or whatever were, that as long as we kept to the liturgy, um, grace was going to be offered. And as, as Catholic or Eastern or whatever his theology may have been sort of becoming for, you know, the next two or three years, uh, he he still had to say the comfortable words, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and so law and gospel, you know, word and sacrament were still kind of um, delivered in spite of maybe what he would have preferred. And at its best, I mean, you said it. It you know uh, the pastor, the priest should be um, under authority and the the prayer book is one of many ways that anglicanism has uh, been able to protect a congregation from the whims of a priest 
And, you know, I really, I really think that's when we, when we move away from common prayer, we lose just one more thing that we never realized was serving us so well until it's gone. And, boy, I just hope that um, North American Anglicanism can, can recover and maybe, maybe younger, a younger audience will, will have a more mature appreciation for the traditional prayer book. Um, and beyond that, I hope that uh, more and more bishops will uh, be open to saying, hey, you know what, Father, I think you're going off the rails here. Mm-hmm. Because I, I tell you, I do not hear that ever. Yep. <laughs> very, yep. very, very seldom do I ever hear that somebody was told by their bishop that this is too far. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and I'll say this, that I hear through the grapevine, you know, when that happens, and it's a much more private uh, admonition, and so I know of a few bishops that are doing that, that are certainly upholding their offices. And, well, thank uh, God. And praise, yeah, great. praise God for it, you know. Um, of course, it's, you know, A, it's bad, because clearly the rumor mill is going about, but, you know, I, I've heard instances when that happens, and I thank God and praise God that the bishop is uh, is doing his godly duty, you know, of uh, of making sure the right thing is being taught. And I'm with you, Jesse. That there's something unique about the younger Anglicans that, although um, I hate to paint with a broad brush, but let's just do it for for sake and ease of convenience. That the Boomer generation really bought in for the most part the seeker sensitive culture, and even into Anglicanism that has been uh, brought over as well. And uh, to a large extent in the ACNA uh, parishes, not all, but, but in certain aspects it has. But there's been a bit of a rebellion that I'm seeing more and more from younger Anglicans, uh, even younger than, than you and me, Jesse, who are really committed to the prayer book. And uh, and even with the 2019 ACNA prayer book, there's so many of them that are basically data mining back to the 1662 and the 1928 <laughs> <Right>. prayer books <laughs> to learn and to form themselves on how was it done pre-1979? So how can I be a faithful Anglican in 2019 by having that same you know, ethos of right. prayer book Anglicanism? So I'm encouraged by that. And frankly, you would not think you know, naturally that that's how the pendulum would swing, yet the pendulum seems to be swinging that direction. And, I mean, it's just a work of the Spirit. Thank God, you know, that we're, we're getting a, a generation rising up saying, you know what? I don't want to be rooted. I was raised, you know, in a church that was, you know, driftless and always looking for something new. I want to be rooted so that when I, you know, raise my family, they are rooted in to a solid core doctrine, form of worship, and we're trained and we are uh, enculturated into the gospel itself. Um, on, yeah. on its best well, days, that's what Anglicanism does. All it does is it raises, trains, lives, breathes, and works the gospel. Um, that's the beauty of the liturgy. Amen. Yeah, well, I, I agree. And I think, you know, in part, in, and I don't like to be too harsh on on the baby boomers. I I, I don't either. That's the reason why I, I said think, I'm going to you know, do a broad <laughs> right. stroke real quick, but... <laughs> but but I, I do think I do think that um, some poor choices were made, uh, and and not necessarily. I mean, here's here's a situation. It kind of goes back to Chesterton's rule of mm-hmm. um, if you don't know why that bridge is 
there anymore that I absolutely will not permit you to remove it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take the time to learn its function and why it was built in the first place, then maybe I will. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think what, what happened is that a lot was removed without anyone really having any conception of what the fallout was going to be. Yeah. And young people are trying to raise families in the fallout. You know, we're in a society that um, has less and less of a shared common language, value system, right? Common beliefs, things that we can all appeal to. If there's an injustice, um, how do you know? How, how, do you, how do you decide that there's an injustice? Yep. Is it because it goes against the laws of God? Is it because it's not good for the, the greatest good for the greatest amount? Is it because it hurt your personal feelings? Mm-hmm. What, you know? Yep. And, and in a society that is uh, no longer has a sense of a common good, and we, we're missing all of these sort of smaller agreements that used to be present in communities like neighborhoods, parishes, and churches, um, the idea that people would throw off those agreements on purpose kind of is mind-blowing to people like ourselves and, and, and those younger who are sort of struggling with uh, finding their moorings in, in this environment. So, yeah, I think that we are trying to reassert some order. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, um, and, I'll, yeah, and that to, go ahead. I was going to say real quick that, like, you know, and to that point about, like, you know, blaming, like, the boomers, like, that's become, like, a very typical, a very typical millennial thing. I hear it a lot, and I'm like, now hold on. Like, for example, someone blamed the 79 prayer book on, like, the boomer generation. I was like, hold on. Boomers, you know, were not old enough to be bishops when the 79 prayer book came through. A lot of them got formed oh, sure. on the 79 prayer book. It's really the greatest mm-hmm. generation, you know, who are the bishops when the 79 prayer book comes in. And when you have, like, uh, uh, Bishop Pike, you know, doing his thing, you know, like, he, he's in the 50s. So this problem has right. really been in American Anglicanism for a long time. And so it's only logical that when you're raised as a boomer on the 79 prayer book, you're not seeing the issues. And I've had that conversation many a time. And it's easy for me to get on my soapbox and rail against it. But then in a pastoral way, in a Christian way, to speak the truth in love on, well, let me point out to you what you've not realized. You know, One of the benefits of me coming into uh, Anglicanism, being a convert to Anglicanism, is I've read my way through it. So therefore, I read the 28 prayer book and then read the 79 before coming into Anglicanism. Whereas if you're well, just, if only that was the case every time. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the point. You know, like, hey, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a history, you know, nut. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't going to make a jump unless I read the documents. But for the vast majority, you know, that's not the way you come in. So it's understandable that for especially ACNA, we're having to wean off of 79 prayer book and get back to the core faith. But what I love and I'm so shocked and I praise God for is that this generation that's two generations deep, technically in 79 prayer book Anglicanism, gets it. You know, it is like, no, 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 we don't want that. We want what is old and historic, you know. It may be in a modern language version, but they want the theology of the articles, and they want the common prayer tradition, you know, all capitalized as Tune does in this uh, this work. Um, Right. And that's what we need. 
Speaking of, why don't I read this uh, last paragraph from Solid Foundation, and uh, we can unpack whatever might be there before we uh, call it a day. What do you think? Sounds great. Okay. So, in contrast, the Book of Common Prayer 1979 and the Book of Occasional Services 1985 were intended, at least by some of their advocates, to create a different and opposed tradition of Christian worship. In justice, they may be called revisionist books, for, if widely and universally used, their impact will be to destroy the received classic tradition of common prayer, which has been at the very center of the genius of Anglicanism. In fact, this destruction is well advanced already in North America, since a generation now exists for whom the tradition of authentic common prayer has not been a living experience. And that's the end of the paragraph, but I'll just remind the listener that uh, that was true when Toon wrote this book, but it's probably been a generation and a half, if not two, by this point. And I love the way he ended that, of that a tradition of authentic common prayer has not been a living experience. And that's exactly, that's well said uh, by Dr. Toon. That, that's what it is that we're missing, is this living experience. You've got to live the prayer book live in order for it to be incorporated in you and for it to trickle down mm-hmm. throughout the uh, the parishes. And yeah. that's what you and me are kind of railing against is that we don't have a living experience because we've got a disjointed Anglicanism, you know. Right. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting. It reminds me very much of, uh, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I happen to enjoy or appreciate Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue. And the first p- chapter of that book is, he, he kind of describes a sci-fi story scenario. He says, imagine that there was a catastrophic uh, loss and all technology, all science was removed from the planet, from civilization. That there was some kind of you know, rebellion and people just got fed up with science and it was all destroyed. And then imagine you have a generation later where people say, no, we're keen on science again. Um, But all they have to work with are fragments of scholarly journals and uh, pieces of textbooks. And what they know of science or what they're attempting to piece back together is so disjointed from the whole body of work that it belongs that it lacks much of the necessary context to be true science. And so he says they, they memorize what's, what's left of the elements that they know of as though, you know, it were uh, a catechism. And, and they, you know, they train their children to... Uh, be familiar with Einstein's theory of relativity without being able to understand what it means. And, and I think that this scenario, which McIntyre says, he says, this is our current situation when it comes to morality, that we used to have shared ideas of morality, but because the fracture took place and now we lack the context of shared experience of these things, 
um, we're doing pseudoscience, basically. And I think this is very much what prayer book traditional Anglicans are attempting to do as well. I mean, I, I think that, thank God, we have much of the writing of our forefathers out there. And so we have much better than fragments to work with. But that living tradition, that living experience of how this looks in a real parish on the ground is, it's dying off. It's going away. And those who are doing traditional prayer book worship very often are making it up as they go in, in the parish context. And so there needs to be people who are excavating the you know, things that were written by parish priests in, in times past. So we can really, I think, um, try to return to some norms when it comes to our church experience. And I mean, not just norms for the age, but norms that are more human. You know, norms for the human experience of worshiping God in community um, rather than, say, what maybe we've inherited, which is, I think, uh, far from, you know, whether you're coming from this uh, sort of entertainment model of church or uh, maybe you're trying to shoehorn Anglican liturgy into whatever you're seeing on EWTN, right? We, we need to rediscover the context and the meaning and the sort of spectrum of human experience that went into these different prayers, these different services, and what it meant to a geography, a community, etc. Absolutely. And I think that what we find ourselves in, I like the example that you mentioned of like having just various journals and trying to put it back together, because that's the scenario we're in. A lot of us who uh, came into Anglicanism are trying to get our hands, uh, you know, trying to do a resourcement of our own to get our hands on classic Anglican thought and theology. To be formed by it and to that extent i've seen a lot on uh, twitter and some on facebook of people saying name your top five you know works from anglicanism or top 10 and i think we need to promote that sure. more often because so many people you know think that oh anglicans you you have no you know real theology whatsoever it's like that's that is not true you know that is not true at all we do have a theology you know we're very much you know biblical anglicans who are committed to the faith uh, that is rooted in the tradition of the uh, patristic church, but also formed uh, by uh, the Protestant Reformation. And so to that extent, and I'm now just kind of talking out loud as an idea, it may be worthwhile for us uh, to get Father Isaac back. I hate that he couldn't make this episode. Um, we're waving at you, Father Isaac. <laughs> you can't see, but uh, hello. You know, we'd love to have uh, all three of us on, maybe to do an episode on it. what are some works that uh, if you're looking into Anglicanism, or if you're trying to be formed in the tradition that you should uh, jump into and dive into, um, including, you know, like Bishop Jewell's apology to uh, uh, Richard Hooker's uh, laws of ecclesiastical uh, polity, um, you know, any of those number of works, because they're out there. Uh, obviously, the prayer book is the go-to place, along with the, the classic catechism that's attached to 39 articles, but uh, also from beyond that, looking at the, the history of the uh, Anglican thought and the Anglican theologians uh, who really form our tradition, not because you should be Anglican for Anglicanism's sake, but because right. we believe that earnestly 
we represent the best of, you know, a mere Christianity that's simply rooted in the faith of our fathers. I mean, that's the reason why I'm Anglican. It's not because, oh, hey, I, I really love the style. You know, it's great, you know, what we get to wear. You know, <laughs> like, or, you know, I really have a personal preference for, you know, uh, you know, particular prayers. You know, I mean, I do, but, you know, it's not, that's not what makes me a committed, you know, or uh, convicted to be and remain an Anglican. It's because of what we believe at the end of the day. And we need to yeah. to rediscover that. Absolutely. And and I think that sometimes people worry about an Anglican obsession over identity. And, you know, I think I can speak for all of us that we we simply believe that to to understand our identity and to live it out is the best way to be missional, the best way to be evangelizing, the best way to be, uh, you know, raising up servants within the church. So this isn't really, this isn't some sort of aesthetic or purely aesthetic or surfacy uh, concern for style. This is knowing who you are and wanting to get the best gems out of your own history to use them for the sake of the kingdom today and tomorrow. Exactly. So, I mean, at the end of the day, even when you look at someone like John Wesley, George Whitfield, who are both uh, considered you know, parts of the uh, Methodist movement within the Church of England, they're both rooted in um, the theology of the 39 Articles. Uh, Wesley even uh, commends the book of homilies and, uh, hmm. and how he roots himself in the homilies. Now, that's debatable on how much he did, but at the end of the day, any movement you see within Anglicanism if it's not rooted in what we believe, then it's something else. And typically, typically, historically, it, it break off at some point. Uh, like the American Methodists eventually break off and go into a different route uh, than the Methodists who remain within Anglicanism and uh, pretty much are assimilated back in. Not all, but, but for the most part. Uh, or even during the great... Uh, uh, ejection of where you have Presbyterians, Baptists, and Congregationalists leaving the Church of England. And this is back in 1662. Because of that prayer book, you have a, a split within uh, the, or from the Church of England. And it's because those who were committed to the prayer book and to its theology stayed within the boundaries of the Church and said, this is what we believe. This is our faith. So, I mean, frankly, how dare we go off and decide we're just going to change things to our own personal preferences. You know, this week, I'm going to change the liturgy. I know that I'm bound under this prayer book, but I'm just going to do something different that suits my own uh, particular needs, wants, or desires. You know, at the end of the day, under ACNA, and I try to make this point for some shameless self-promotion on one of the articles uh, published on the North American Anglican, that under our fundamental declaration, you know, we uphold the 1662 prayer book as not only an authority for worship, but also for doctrine. So when we have a question in this confusing time of multiple, you know, authorized liturgies, look back to the 1662 to see what did our forefathers give us. We're not using the 1662, but we certainly are upholding it as a standard of not only the worship that we model, but also the doctrine that we hold on top of uh, the articles, you know, the creeds, the Bible, you know, um, the, the catechism, a variety of, of authorities there, but... Let's not fool ourselves and simply become popes of our own local congregations, or even worse, popes right. for ourselves in our own little private rooms. Right. Yep. 
And as uh, editor of the North American Anglican to the author of that particular article, I affirm that shameless plug. <laughs> and I think, yeah, it, look, the North American Anglican is a group of writers or represents a group of writers who are absolutely doing their best to do much of that excavation work that we've been talking about. They're digging into the past. They're ministering in the present, right? These are not just, most of these people are not just pure academics. They are pastors. They are working with real human beings in the real world for the gospel. Um, but they're also trying to do that heavy lifting of staying in the books and uncovering what useful parts of our own tradition we ought to be employing today. Um, and before we go too long, I think we better cut it off there, Andrew. Any final thoughts before we close up? You know, I'm all out of useless opinions from uh, me, myself, and I. But uh, I think that this oh, has been shush. good. <laughs> I think it's been good. And, uh, and I will say one more thing on your plug for the North American Anglican. The great thing about it is it's not a one-sided uh, place for publications. That, as we've seen recently in the past week, you know, there you publish responses from other pieces. There is you can have what I'm trying to say is that you can have a diversity of opinion underneath the umbrella of classical Anglicanism. It's not a you know, a this is how you Absolutely. have to think in order to be classically Anglican or this is how you have to believe or have to uh, well you do have to believe a certain way, but you have to articulate a doctrine only one way and one way only by being an Anglican committed to the prayer book. There's still a Catholic diversity, but an Orthodox and Catholic boundary to being faithful to right. uh, the Anglican uh, tradition and doctrine. Yep, and we happen to think that when uh, the various schools that remain faithful to the Anglican formularies uh, butt heads and have disagreements in a fruitful way, the rest of us only benefit from that. I like so, that. Various schools. It's like we're a university. You know, the schools. Absolutely. You know, the science. <laughs> you know, sciences may not see the point of the liberal arts, and the liberal arts may not like the sciences. But you're at one university, and we can have these debates under the same banner of, you know, University of Anglicanism. That's right. Absolutely. Which we will be opening up next year. <laughs> <laughs> Dean Jesse, I like uh, the sound of it. <laughs> I know, it's very ambitious, aren't we? Okay, well, um, I think that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, next time, we hope to have all three voices and maybe even uh, an extra portion of Dr. Toon. Take care and have a good one, everyone. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.